Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 70. I hope everybody's having a great week out there. We're certainly having a good week here at the Drum Shuffle World Headquarters. Really excited to bring you an interview with one of the great uh, young jazz drummers in the United States. Uh, he has studied with some of the the greatest jazzers of all time. We will be joined in just a moment by Matt Slocum. We had such a great time talking about his new record uh, called Sanctuary. That's going to hit the streets on May 31st, so be sure you're looking out for that. But we'll be joined by uh, Matt here in just a moment after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody. As I mentioned, we're going to be joined by the great Matt Slocum here in just a moment. Um, Matt has uh, it just had an incredible uh, career up to this point. And again, one of the great young jazz drummers out there uh, in the United States right now. So we were very pleased to get him on the program. Um, he has just a wonderful new jazz trio record that will be hitting the streets on May 31st called Sanctuary. Uh, and I want to send a huge thank you to Matt. After we actually did the interview, uh, I had heard the digital files. He went out of his way to send me a vinyl copy of the record. So I really do appreciate that. And uh, it, it's just a wonderful record. So I was very pleased to get him on the program to talk all about it. We had a wonderful visit. Uh, so please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle, Matt Slocum. Good evening, Matt. Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Thank you so much for taking time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Oh, you're you're more than welcome. Hey, let let's um, let's do this. I want to mention this right off the bat. 
um, the new record, Sanctuary, uh, is coming out. Is it May 31st? Am I getting the date right? That's it. Yep. Okay. So I, I just want to say this before we get into your history. Um, you know, I have spent some time over the weekend with the record. And I just want to say that it is, um, I, I love it, first of all. But secondly, it's a little bit different. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit as we go through the interview. Um, but it's a, a great great record. So congratulations on that. Oh, thanks so much, man. I'm, I'm really glad you dig it. It's, it's really cool. And as a non jazz guy, you know, as I am, you know, I grew up in the, you know, Bonham and I, I don't know, Tommy Lee and Rod Morgenstein school. I, I'm not a jazz player. I certainly appreciate the art form that it is. It's really, really good. I can't say that enough, but um, as we typically do here on the drum shuffle, let's rewind a bit and start at the very beginning. Tell everybody where you grew up and how you got behind a drum set for the first time. Sure. Well, I'm from a small town in Wisconsin. Um, it's about an hour outside of Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, New Richmond, Wisconsin. And... I think now it's up to maybe 8,000 people. It used to be like five or six. So Huge city. Yeah, actually, strangely for that area, it's kind of like a, a bigger one. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it seems really small now. But um, my parents uh, had us all, they had two younger brothers. They kind of were like, look, you're going to play piano. And I was kind of cool with that because we had to play piano for two years before you were allowed to join percussion in sixth grade, you needed to have that piano background. Um, okay. So, so we're talking just, school, just, school band, right? So you had to have pia yeah. piano lessons before you could do percussion in middle school band. Yeah. And so I guess even, you know, it, so middle school band started in like sixth grade. So I guess even in third or fourth grade, I had, I wasn't really playing drums, but I knew that I wanted to at least do percussion in school. And I remember, you know, seeing like some parades and marching drums and just hearing the cadences and stuff like that. And that's, I think that's the first thing that kind of drew me to it. It wasn't like I went and heard Elvin Jones when I was eight years old or something like that. But, so you did um, not see Ringo in 1964 on Ed Sullivan, right? No, no, nothing like that. <laughs> well, you know, 90% of the guys of a certain age, they point to that day, right? Huh. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not a Ringo aficionado by any means, but I loved his playing and, um, I could see that being a very, very powerful moment for, of course, for drummers, but, you know, any kind of musician hearing that. So as a youngster, you know, you said you wanted, after hearing cadences and things and marching bands, so you're, you're taking piano for a couple of years, you get to the sixth grade, and did you immediately jump into the percussion 
uh, department or were they like, well, this is somebody that that might be able to play, you know, marimba? Walk us through that a bit. Well, we had to play um, all the instruments, so we would have to play mallet instruments and stuff like that, too. And, yeah, it seems a little different now. Like, a lot of times, even in sixth grade, it'll be split between who's going to play mallet percussion, who's going to play snare and bass. But that was kind of why they would have us do piano for a couple of years before it. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad that they did because it, not that my piano chops are amazing at all. It's, it's really just functional playing so I can compose, but, um, I'm glad that was my first instrument because I, I really like composing on it. I still write on piano a lot. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I, I ask the question a lot of drummers that compose for their records. And, you know, I think the, the, the first guy that I had on the show was Brandon Goodwin of Bees Bees. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but g- great band out of Canada. And I asked right. him, I said, you know, when you sit down and compose, are you thinking about all the cool drum spots that you're going to have? Or are you just really coming from a melodic standpoint? So tell me about your younger days being a, as you said, functional piano player. Do you compose based on melody or are you thinking drums in the back of your mind since that's your main instrument? The drums are always later for me when I'm composing. So it's, um, a lot of times it's melody. Yeah, I'd say most of the time I'll write songs that where I'm coming up with the shape of the melody first and then that's going to drive the harmonic possibilities. Sometimes I'll be interested in just a certain harmonic progression and I'll try to get in there and write like five melodies over the top of that same um, progression. So if you... Actually, this is the first time where I kind of did that um, on a recording. Um, there's a tune on there called Aspen Island, uh, which is based on a Chopin prelude. So um, I basically had the harmony from that. I mean, there were a few things that I kind of adapted or extended, but then I was just exploring writing melody over that. And then the, the tune Consolation Prize is also a contrafact, which is... Um, using, I mean, these guys did some different things harmonically, but it's based on the harmony for an Irving Berlin tune. Um, the best thing for you would be me. So, but the vast majority of the times I'm writing the harmony and writing the melody, but I'm not, yeah, the, I'm, a lot of times I'm not even thinking of a meter until later. So the drumming stuff for me, um, comes in later as something like, okay, what needs to happen with the drums to enhance um, what's here musically with this composition, not necessarily basing the composition around some kind of cool drum groove or something like that. Right on. Well, you, you said something in there that, that piqued my curiosity, at least you said, I'm not even thinking about the meter. (laughs) And as a two and four backbeat kind of guy, 
if I were going to sit down and write a rock record, I'm certainly <laughs> thinking about the meter. There's going to be no sevens and no thirteens for me. You know what I'm saying? Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> I like that too, you know? Yeah. I that's mean, amazing. I, I, I'm just going to avoid the, the really odd stuff, you know, the one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three. <laughs> I'm just going to avoid it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not intentionally using it. It's just like I might write it and then I'll just play it almost like I'm thinking of, of it rubato on the piano. Right. And then uh, then I just record it and listen back and kind of see where it could fit in, you know, if if it needs extensions of phrases for the melody to flow and stuff like that. But Right. We're, we're, we're right on for sure. So, you know, and I hate to jump around so much, but going back to your younger days, you know, I kind of want to understand because here's something that I have learned, you know, doing this show, growing up in the South or the Midwest, however you want to classify Kentucky, everybody here that has classical training it comes from marching band, you know, and it was, you know, the Friday night football game kind of thing. And I've had a lot of great Canadian drummers on the show and they're like, there's no such thing as marching band and football, (laughs) you know, on Friday night. So being from Wisconsin, you know, great football college, obviously, did you, did you do kind of a marching sort of thing to learn your rudiments or were you getting all that stuff from a private instructor? Talk to me a little bit about that, you know, fundamental foundation that you got. Yeah, you're totally right about that because we had marching band and I would say that's really for rudiment stuff. That's how I worked on it. Um, Just kind of out of necessity you know, cause we had older kids in it and they'd be like, all right, well you need to roll or you learn these cadences. Um, and then with private teachers, I never really had a private teacher who was, um, super rudimentally based, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, and we would work on it and but I've always had kind of, yeah, even when I was younger, guys who we were focusing more on just you know learning tunes and stuff like that. So I'm I'm really glad that um, we had that marching band experience um, to kind of work on the rudimental foundation. So it, it, that's where you got your chops from. Then is is marching band? Yeah, and I, we had concert band and stuff too. But you're right as far as learning the rudiments and. Um, that, that was it. And I, there's some good summer jazz programs up there. One in Shell Lake, Wisconsin, I went to a lot. And, um, so we would get handouts there and and we would work on rudiments there. And that was cool too. Yeah, for sure. So talk to me a little bit about the love of jazz, because you and I are about the same age. I think you might actually be a little younger than me you talked about your parents telling you that you were going to do piano. Um, you, you know, so what kind of records were in the house? 
it's funny. I, I don't even know what all, I think most of the time it was just like, we'd be listening to the radio or something, whatever they have <laughs> sure. on. It certainly wasn't jazz. You know, I, I guess my dad would probably play classical music while he was working and stuff like that. But, you know, and my brothers, we were probably listening to whatever top 40 stuff and just tunes like that. I, I didn't start listening to jazz until we were playing in a jazz band in school, maybe until eighth or ninth grade. Um, and then I had had a couple recordings. I had the Rich versus Roach. Um, oh, that's a good one. I, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a that's sure. a. I, hey, as a jazz drummer, I'm not much better than that. Yeah, that that's an incredible recording. Um, I had Study and Brown, Clifford Brown recording another one with Max Roach on there, and then I had. Cooking with the Miles Davis Quintet with uh, Billy Joe Jones on drums. And I think those are the first jazz CDs I had. I don't know how I decided on those. But um, then maybe my sophomore year, um, my mom found me a great teacher in Minneapolis, a drummer named Phil Hay, who studied with Ed Blackwell. And... um, yeah, I mean, the Phil, first time we went. Phil Hay. Oh, you, you, I, I, you know Phil? I, yes, I am familiar with the name. And as we say down here in the South, stone cold badass. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, I agree with that description. Yeah. And yeah, the first time we went to hear him play. So I guess I'm like 15 years old or something. And he just, he got a sheet of staff paper and just filled it with like, 50 records, you know, and that, and he wasn't really going to give me a lesson until I went and bought those and listened to those and checked them out. So that, that's when I started to do some more like actual listening, um, and getting somewhat of a collection of recordings together. What I find interesting is there's, there's kind of two paths that you can go as a young drummer, and I'm talking about high school age, you know, I got my first kit when I was probably, I don't know, 12. And, you know, for me, it was put on Led Zeppelin records and, you know, Motley Crue and and all the stuff that was popular of the time, you know, and, and I wanted to fly upside down like Tommy Lee kind of thing. Nice. Yeah. Don't we but, all? Yeah. Well, yes, we, we all do. But it never occurred to me, you know, I mean, I heard about stuff like Bitches Brew and, it, you know, and I listened to it and I just didn't get it. My my 12-year-old, 13-year-old brain didn't understand it. But the two paths are go with, you know, the, the heavy drum-laden kind of rock music, classic rock, if you will, in this day and age, or the more studied jazz path. Clearly you chose the, the, the jazz path. What was it in your life that pushed you in that direction versus, you know, FM radio in Wisconsin at that time, which, you know, had to be, you know, the, the stuff that I've talked about. Right. Yeah. It's interesting because the first band that I was in outside of school, this was like seventh grade or something. 
And the only reason I got the gig was because of, you know, no other drummers around. But this was like a, a <laughs> by default band. By default, yeah, so, I by get default, the gig. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it was cool. I liked trying to play ska punk stuff. I never, I, you know, really studied it in the way that would be needed to play any style of music masterfully. But, um, I don't know. I think just this, this Indian head art center that's up in Shell Lake, Wisconsin was just kind of really interesting to hear musicians like that. I remember there was a piano player, piano teacher, um, who came up to teach her during the summers from Indiana University, Luke Gillespie. And just hearing this guy play and we would have a listening class and stuff there. Because like I went to the camp, but it was only really to just get better at playing jazz for school or something. You know, I wasn't like, oh man, jazz is where it's at or whatever. But that kind of lured me in hearing musicians like that. And I was just... um drawn to that uh, creative process, improvising. And then when I heard Phil and got to spend more time with Phil, I think those are the things that kind of um, pulled me in is just those, those personal interactions and, and pointing me, steering me to that music. And maybe it would have gone there anyway. I don't know, but those are the things I kind of see as signposts. Yeah. For, yeah. Well, and, and that's fair, you know, and, and, I disclosed to you before we hit the record button that I love jazz music, but if you, you know, put a gun to my head, I could not get through a jazz trio kind of gig comfortably. You know, I mean, I, I might be able to fake it till I make it kind of thing, but it's just not something that, that I'm comfortable with as a player Yet when I listen to your playing, you're just like, oh, yeah, man, I'm going to swing this like a mo. You know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's funny. I remember um, Phil, Phil Hay saying something like, you know, all these articles in Modern Drummer are kind of telling drummers like, OK, you got to be able to cover all your bases and like go make your studio session with your 22 inch bass drum and then come back and make your bebop record with, and that's cool. And actually, you know, a handful of musicians like Peter Erskine comes to mind and, you know, Steve Gadd, stuff like that can do that. But Phil was like, you know, I actually kind of have, it's been better for me just specializing, you know, and, and Phil is a, musician he listens to all that stuff he loves Led Zeppelin and he um U2 and his ears are open you know but he was really kind of um just specialized on that so I I don't know if that kind of sunk in or if it's just that I can't rock out that well, you know, just find the <laughs> no. to do the jazz thing. But uh, no, I, th I, I maybe, th maybe some of both. Yeah, yeah, I think that's nonsense. But <laughs> I think you could rock out if you wanted to. Um, you know, you mentioned Peter Erskine, and I had him on this program. And I, you know, I thank God every day when I get up and say my morning prayers <laughs> because. 
you can pretty much land any guest on a podcast when you say, hey, I had Peter Erskine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. it, it just lends instant credibility. But I told Peter the same thing I just told you. And that's just, you know, I can't play jazz comfortably. And he's the first guest that ever like interviewed me. He was like, well, tell me why you think that is. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's, oh, it's, yeah, he'll totally take it to some Jedi level. For sure. And it was some Yoda stuff, you know, and um, he told me, he said, the older you get, the more you're going to go back to the roots of the instrument and jazz is going to be the first thing that sticks out like a big toe to you kind of thing. But, you know, here's the thing about you and your playing that I've picked up on from listening to the new record is that while it, you know, I think I, I described it to you as, you know, fairly atmospheric in the early moments of some of the tunes, you dig in at some point and it's true jazz music, which is really, really cool. Um, with that said, I want to understand how did you leave Wisconsin and go to New York? Was it, was there ever, you know, a, a decision process of, well, I could go to LA, I could go, you know, to, to wherever. What made you leave Wisconsin and go to New York? Well, California was in between. I, I lived in California for seven years and that's where. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Went, so, so you yeah, left yeah. Wisconsin and went to the West. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's where I studied with Peter Erskine. Um, I went to USC and then after I graduated, I stayed in California for three more years. Cause. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so you left, oh, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but you left Wisconsin and went to, to Thornton school of music at USC. Yes. Okay. okay. Sorry. I completely missed that. Sorry. Oh no, I don't even know if that's in there or anything, but yeah, that's, um, that's, that was the path. And then, cause I don't think I would have felt, you know, ready to just go move to New York or anything like that. I, I I'm happy that I spent some time in California and it was a great experience getting to study with Peter and um, Joe LaBarbera, uh, Alan Pasqua, Shelley Berg, John Clayton. They were all teaching at USC. Man, what, and, what um, a faculty lineup. I mean, really? Yeah, it, it was great. And the musicians who were at the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz at the time, that was, I guess now it's Herbie Hancock Institute or Herbie Hancock something, but... Um, that was on campus at USC. So um, that was really incredible. You know, Lionel Luique um, and his trio and Gretchen Parlato was in that group, Dana Stevens. And there were different groups then. Uh, Ambrose and Walter Smith and Chris Dingman, they came in in a later group. And having those musicians there too was really cool. Um, it was now those are some of the musicians that I'm most interested in um, the directions that they're going with music. Uh, Taylor Eichstee and Gerald Clayton were both 
studying at USC at the same time. Taylor, for not as long, I think he got some Dukes pretty early and kind of bailed. But, um, yeah. Wow. And then a lot of great musicians who did jazz studies majors, like my best friend, um, bassist, and he kind of, he still does a lot of jazz. Um, he plays with Michael Bublé. Actually, a lot of the musicians who um, were at USC around that time are in Michael Bublé's band or, or doing some writing for him. And yeah, some of these guys, they would do jazz studies as a major just because it was closer to, um, you know, whatever they were into, more pop or and some creative kind of improvised stuff. And then kind of go back to just whatever. Maybe they build their own studio or um, stuff like that. So it was a whole mix of things. And it was a really cool environment to be in. Well, yeah, for sure. So I, so I have to ask, you know, at that time, you know, I again, you're a little bit younger than me, but the, the choices were essentially Berkeley, you know, USC, North Texas, et cetera. Did you look at all of those places or were you just immediately like, no, I'm going to LA? Well, at the time I was looking at like schools. I thought I was going to do like a double degree, like music and psychology or something. So I was looking at like liberal arts schools and I, I did look at Eastman school of music too, just because they had like a, partnership yeah. with the University of Rochester. Yeah. So I was looking at that one pretty seriously and I went and looked at Northwestern, which I probably should have done more research on it because, you know, I had to like play this classical percussion audition, which is really stressful. And they're like, yeah, okay, if you get in, you do this for two years and then you can do some jazz your junior and senior year. <laughs> I, was like, I, don't, I don't know if it's worth the trip to Chicago, but the four mallet um, marimba solo is is what we're all looking forward to, right? Yeah, that that was really stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad I, yeah, I'm glad it worked out with uh, with USC. So, but yeah, I, I wasn't looking at like conservatories at that time. So, USC kind of fit the bill pretty well. Okay, well, and my apologies for not knowing that you went west before you went east. But you know, you're you're in New York City now. Talk to our listeners a little bit about how you decided to leave L.A. Because I, I you know, presumably for a guy with chops like yours, there's a ton of movie scores that you could do in L.A. at any time kind of thing. Um, how did you make the decision to say, yeah, I'm going to leave the West coast and head to New York? I guess. Hmm. It had always sort of been on my radar. I felt like that was sort of a rite of passage to live in New York. I, I live in Montclair, New Jersey, which is outside the city, but to live in the area, um, for at least, some point in time of time. Um, yeah. I, and I talked with Peter about it. He recommended it. Joe LaBarbera, same situation. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I came and, um, I don't think I'm going to leave. You know, so, uh, <laughs> That's fair. Now. Yeah. 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 Um, 
I just like all the film scoring and the uh, recording for that. That's, that's an amazing thing. And there's some incredible musicians doing that. Um, I was just kind of interested in at that time, you know, I was pretty, I guess 25 or 26, I think when I moved here and I just wanted to write and play and just kind of see what developed and try to develop, um, whatever voice was there, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, so, okay. This is a question that I asked to all my New York city guys and you know, you get there, did you immediately just start going to the open mic nights to, to say, Hey, I, I'm here to play. Is that how you got your name out or talk to me about, I've just moved to a city of, you know, however many million people, you know, how do I get my name out and get gigs? Yeah. Well, um, I was fortunate. I had some friends who already lived here, you know, and I'm not gigging as much as Lewis Nash or Eric Harland or something like that, but they really eased the transition. And if for somebody who's looking at moving here, um, the, the advice that I would give is save up money, you know, so you don't have to, get here and be poor or like try to, you know, be working some other thing. I, I had a really good, uh, a friend of mine, a saxophonist named Dana Stevens. Um, and a lot of musicians actually live in this artist housing. So I was on a waiting list for artist housing for maybe two years before I moved here. And then when that came up, um, that's, that's when I moved. And it was a good setup because you can practice at your place. It's inexpensive. And it gave me, um, that was a perfect spot to move here and just focus on creating music, you know, um, and having some friends from school who had already moved here was good too. Yeah. You talk about artist housing and being able to practice. So I have to ask, you know, the obvious question when you live in artist housing as a drummer and you're practicing, do you ever have the 3 a.m. dude, the oboe solo is good enough? I mean, (laughs) tell me about that. There is. I don't remember what the hours were, but it's like you basically got to wrap it up by maybe seven or something like that. Oh, yeah. okay. So, so it's realistic, yeah. real world kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I think maybe technically you can go till nine, I, uh, but I never like, I never pushed it like that. I would, <laughs> I would practice during the day, you know? Right. Well, you know, I, I mean, that's an interesting thing that is kind of New York centric. Right. I mean, um, you know, I had the great R.J. Rabin on the show and he was like, dude, there is a guy that plays House of the Rising Sun on the saxophone (laughs) on my street like 18 hours a day. And, you know, if I could own a gun in New York City, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. So I, I was just unsure. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a big consideration, especially for people who are um, living in the city. You know, if, if you move to Brooklyn or Queens or uptown um, in Harlem, I like, part of the reason why I stayed out here in New Jersey is because, you know, I can practice at the house here and it's really, uh, it's nice to just be able to play without schlepping to some practice studio, you know, like some shared space where you've got whatever hours during the day to practice there. And so that's, that's a big consideration too, for at least for drummers out here is just finding space to practice. Well, yeah, you can pretty much get away with murder as opposed to being in an apartment in Brooklyn or whatever. Yeah. So, all right, Matt, talk to me a little bit about the new record because it's coming out on May 31st. And, you know, as I mentioned, I got to, you know, spend a little bit of time with the record and it's really, really good. Um, one oh, of thanks, the, man. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. It really is good. And it is very sonically pleasing. So I think some of the details that I want to know, number one is where was it recorded? Because it sounds so good, but you know, it's a traditional kind of jazz trio kind of thing. Um, it's your compositions, but one of the things that I mentioned to you when we first started talking was the album opens with almost a one minute bass solo, upright bass. That is not what you would expect from a drummer led trio. So, so walk me through some of that stuff. Sure. Well, I guess as far as the bass solo and that kind of approach, I'm, I'm kind of trying to just take off any labels from the music. Like it's just, there's piano, bass and drums. I'm not thinking of it as a drummer led thing. I'm just thinking there's this music, there's these compositions and we're here and and let's play and then let's see how they work together. Um, in, in order uh, on the record. It, the studio that we recorded at is Sear Sound, um, which is an amazing studio. Um, and it was my first time recording there. And the engineer is an amazing musician named, or amazing engineer named Brian Montgomery. Um, he does all Maria Schneider's stuff. He's done some stuff with Paul McCartney. Um, and yeah, he's just super heavy. Um, mastering was at master disc. Um, this guy, Scott Hall was, um, one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest living mastering engineers. And there's also, uh, wow. You must be person. rich because <laughs> if you no, go to, I'm, I'm if, not, but if you but, go to uh, master yeah. disc, you're, you're, you're going for it. <laughs> I'm I'm not rich, but I I decided to go all out with this one as far as audio quality, and especially because um, there's a vinyl pressing. Um, oh, so you are doing vinyl. vinyl for sure? Yeah, yeah, it's it's Killer. done. Um, yeah, so um, and Scott 
cut the vinyl and that was a whole process. I mean, even with, um, it, and it was, um, at quality records pressing, which I think is my understanding is that's kind of like the audiophile spot in the U S. So we did that whole process. We had two rejected test pressings and then it's super clean now. So I'm really happy with how the vinyl came out and, can, um, can I get one of the rejected tr- uh, test pressings? W- would that be possible? Oh, no, no. <laughs> I don't. I don't even have a date. You know, because I'm. I'm not like such a vinyl aficionado. I'm. I'm more just kind of building up my system. You know, I need to sell this vinyl so I can like get audiophile stuff. But yeah. Um, so I, I've got a decent setup though, and and Scott was like the the mastering engineer was the quality control for it and. Yeah, so I don't even have the test pressing, but I'll send you one of the uh, the approved ones. <laughs> you no, know, I want one of the uber rare things so I can put it on eBay 20 years from now and be a billionaire. Then <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, don't, don't do a jazz one. No, I, or, or, I, yeah. I'm, I, I'm teasing. I tell you what, I will give you my PayPal account as soon as we wrap up because I do want a vinyl pressing of this because it's... Oh, man, I'll, I'll send you one. We're good. No, no. It's such a good record. I mean, so here's the thing. All right. So at, it, with you, I'm working with a publicist, you know, to get you on the show. And your publicist sent me... Basically, he was like, here's the, you know, the flack files. Here's the, you know, 24 bit, the 16 bit. I listened to it in hi-fi on my system. You know, I've got a pretty decent studio here. It nice. was it was incredible. I mean, it really is. And, you know, I put on the first track and I was like, wow, it's a, minute long bass solo and i don't mean to keep hitting on that but oh yeah so i did oh, I guess but, I kind of a drug but yeah yeah but most yeah, of the drummer led kind of things it's like here's the drum solo to start off my record you know and and yeah. you did not approach it that way so talk to me a little bit about your bass player because he's pretty cool yeah well, Larry Grenadier is one of my favorite bassists on the planet. Um, and as far as putting that first, uh, that's just where it seemed to work well musically. And um, I don't know, as far as drummer led records, I mean, yeah, I, as a drummer, I love to record like Rich versus Roach, you know, where the pant plays like two choruses and then it's just a battle. I love listening <laughs> right. to that stuff. Of course. But, but my favorite ones are more like, I don't know, Brian Blade Fellowship yeah, and um, stuff like that, where it's, it's just music, you know, or P- Paul Motion records, you know, it's not, there's no need to just blast. Um, oh, actually, I should mention some of the Peter Erskine recordings too. Like he's got some pretty... I mean, all of his stuff is, is amazing, but uh, particularly with his uh, uh, the records he did for ECM, he's got four amazing piano trio records, one of which I think is they're doing a reissue on, I saw. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not 
putting it in a box of drummer led thing, even though I know that is what it is. Um, and Larry, it was the first, this session was the first time I had played with him and, but he made it super comfortable. Uh, he plays with Brad Meldow's trio. Um, he's on a, another amazing record that I think, uh, with Larry Goldings playing piano and, and Paul Motion on drums is called Awareness. And yeah, that was one of the first ones I heard hearing Larry Grenadier play in a piano trio context. And he just opened up a world of possibilities. So it was, it was amazing to get to play with him. He has actually, I should say he's got a solo bass recording uh, that just came out on ECM records maybe a couple months ago. And it's, incredible i promise everybody thinks like oh solo bass how am i going to listen to an hour of this or whatever but it's of course they do this will this will blow your mind i it's it's crazy well well here's the thing that struck me about your record you know and, and look i'm not trying to be the guy that's a critic i'm not david frick right i totally <laughs> not i you know I don't do the critic thing, but some of the jazz records that comes through the drum shuffle studios, it just seems like, you know, three, four, five, seven, twelve, whatever number of dudes in the band, dudes and ladies, it's like, okay, we're all going to take turns just showing off. Your record right. does not come across that way. However, I'm glad, I, I'm glad you feel that way. Yes. I, I don't feel like it's three guys just, you know, wanking around in the studio. I, I do not feel that way. However, it's not a traditional jazz record. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's because it's, yeah, I wouldn't say that they're, I don't know. It's hard for me to have as clear a perspective on it. I'm, I'm so in it, but yeah, I wouldn't describe it as a traditional jazz record. I mean, the first tune is an arrangement um, of a composition by song, singer songwriter, Sufjan Stevens. And it, I mean, it's all the rest are originals and, well, you I know, mean, certainly, but it, yeah. my point of saying that is if you want to hear traditional jazz or traditional bebop or traditional big band, this probably isn't the record for you. I mean, no, I, yeah, it's not. It, yeah. It's it, there are many tracks that are fairly atmospheric, if I can use <laughs> God, I feel like David Frick all of a sudden, but it's it's fairly atmospheric for the first few seconds of the track, and then you guys dig in, and it's clearly jazz, but I would not say it's an avant-garde jazz record either. There There is some tradition in there. There's some bebop in there, certainly. How would you describe the record? Ooh. <laughs> oh man you're on the spot now matt yeah 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 what did duke ellington say about this like maybe he was talking about labels musicians had to choose most would choose none but um 
How would I describe the record? Uh, well, one thing with this record, as opposed to other ones, is that normally I compose specifically for the musicians that I know are going to be on the record date. So I'm thinking of their sound in advance. And this time I decided not to do that. I decided to write whatever I felt like writing. And I wrote a ton of tunes and just went through it. And then I got the ones that I dug the most. And then I decided on the configuration that for piano trio, that it would flow. Um, I would say it's, it's an introspective recording. Um, tunes are more lyrical and interactive and the drumming is based more around textures and interaction than it is about um, chops and, and um, traditional swinging stuff like that. That's my, that's my best shot at it, Jamie. Well, I, I mean, I think that's fair. And here's what I will say about the record. I, you know, again, I spent some time with it over the weekend. Um, I, I felt like, okay, it's, this is going to be, you know, again, I don't mean to harp on it, but you know, the first track is there's like a, almost a minute of a bass solo. And then, you know, the piano comes in and then you're kind of doing some atmospheric things, but when it starts to swing, it swings hard. You know, that that's what was so cool to me was it, it's not just like, uh, I don't know, three dudes doing solos with mics set up in a studio. Clearly, you composed most of this thinking about how this is going to come across as a trio. And here's the other thing that I will point out about the record is the fact that you guys actually have some tour dates booked. Um, you know, and I, I'm not trying to come across as a jerk at all, but when a jazz trio books dates in multiple states, it's because the record is really good. You know, I mean, it's like you can go to any jazz club, any place, and here three dudes do solos at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I will. I, I try to give everyone equal weight in this thing. And it's the, the goal is just for it to be an ensemble and not, you know, just blasting off with solo fireworks or whatever. Um, so I appreciate that. Yeah. That, um, and the tour dates, it kind of varies. You know, Gerald and Larry are so busy that it's it's really hard to get them. You know, they'll be home like a week out of the year or something. But um, <laughs> and you steal them for that week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so 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 it's going to be some different musicians on on those dates, but also amazing musicians. And um, Larry's going to play on the New York uh, record release gig, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it should be fun. I'm, practicing getting ready for it as we speak so let me ask you this um and in efforts of full disclosure i have no idea who you play who your endorsements are through any of that stuff 
but the cymbal sound on this record is pretty incredible. And I'm guessing they were using microphones worth more than, you know, my drums, cymbals, and cars combined, but your ride sound is incredible. Talk to me a little bit about the gear you were using. Uh, yeah. Okay. So two things. You're totally right. Sear Sound has an insane collection of microphones. Um, it's, I, I hope that studio can, you know, stay there forever because it's amazing, but it's, you know, it's tricky. It's uh, midtown Manhattan and the way that real estate works, you know, most of the studios are gone, but it's hard these it, days for to, sure. Yeah. We're lucky that one's still there. Um, and uh, for those who haven't heard of Walter Sear, that's an amazing story of somebody who's just, you know, I think he, he said something along the lines of just that recorded sound sucks. So he's just going to do everything he can to just make it better. <laughs> and he, uh, he was a genius. Um, and so this studio kind of carries on that legacy um, I remember reading something in Modern Drummer magazine where somebody wrote in like, you know, Max Roach, uh, and I'm not comparing myself to Max Roach, like one of my all-time drum heroes, but they, <laughs> they wrote, they wrote Max Roach, uh, what, what symbols did you use on this recording? Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, he kind of gave him a like smart ass reply, like, it doesn't because he wrote back in a later month or something like uh, it doesn't matter. It's, <laughs> it's not the symbols. It's me. It was it's Mac like, Roach. It. it was Max Roach touching the symbols. That yeah, the, it's like it's like <laughs> wait. Well, I'm still pretty sure you had some amazing K's. So what were those? Um. So yeah, I um I had an Istanbul Agop hookup when I was in California. It was kind of just unofficial, I guess. I, yeah, I haven't really, I don't have anything with them now that I'm here, but, um, I have some of those symbols. I so you're unendorsed. Stuff. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. For symbols. Yeah. I, I have, I endorse Canopus drums and those are great. I, I play Neo vintage. Those uh, are series. great drums. And I, okay. So here, I'm going to do it for you. Istanbul Agap. Listen to this. You need to fix this man up. He's plugging you. <laughs> plug him. The Canopus stuff, um, you know, look, I endorse a very, very small boutique drum company called Bowie Custom out of Maryland, and they're great. Oh, nice. Um, they're, they're fantastic. Canopus makes some really nice drums, and mainstream drummer world misses the mark on them a lot. They make some great stuff. All I'm saying, and I don't mean to get in front of you on this, is whatever symbols you were using in the studio, man, they sound fantastic. I don't give a crap what kind of mics they were using. They sound good. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I like um, warm, dark, and I guess fairly dry you know yeah it's tough to tough to hit all three but you know the 
the quest is lifelong there. So well, we uh, keep searching. I, I, I'm going to put a plug in for my company, Dream Symbols out of Toronto. Oh, you, you nice. Need, nice. Check, check them out. And if you need an email, I'll give it to you when we get done. But they would, I'm telling you right now, they would love to have you. So um, the record is just so sonically pleasing. You know, and part of the thing about jazz, in my opinion, again, and I'm coming from an you know, from a rock perspective, because that's what I do, is when you have a piano trio kind of band, sometimes it's not sonically pleasing, if that makes any sense to you. Sometimes it's very thin sounding, and especially mm. with an upright bass guy. I, I, I mean, your record... I'm telling you right now, whether you want to play it behind, um, I don't know, sitting down with your family for dinner or doing kind of, you know, dance night in your living room. You're having, you know, a wine tasting party. Your record fits the bill on a lot of different planes. So, you know, I think that's kudos to you for the composition, certainly. And it's a lot of comp, uh, uh, kudos to the studio and to using master disc. Quite honestly, um, it's just so good sounding. Yeah, I, I am really grateful to. I mean, we we spent a lot of time. The engineer too, Brian Montgomery, is uh, he used to work at Avatar Studios, and he, you know, spent a lot of time. James Farber is a really incredible engineer and Brian kind of like came up working with James and he, you know, all, I mean, all the engineers came through avatar and he, he worked a lot with Al Schmidt. Um, so he, yeah, he recorded it and then we mixed it too. He's got a great spot. He's got his own setup in Queens and he's just, I feel like basically every, um, kind of big band, younger big band record in New York is like, he's doing it, you know, because they've heard what he's done with Maria Schneider. Um, he does Alan Ferber's stuff. I think he does some John Holland back. Uh, he does Darcy James argues stuff. So well, to have him where he's just dealing with three instruments. I mean, then we can really, get in there and mess around with all kinds of just little different shading and how that affects <laughs> sure. the feel of the music and stuff. So yeah, let's put, I feel like it's kind of, let's put a lost. Th yeah. Thing, I mean, you it, know, like yeah, Spotify, it's, whatever. Yeah. It, it's let's put three ribbon microphones on the piano. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it just becomes incredible sounding. It's just, I can't say it enough. It sounds like gold. And, you know, from my lips to God's ears, as we say down here in Kentucky, let's hope it ships gold, right? Sell 500,000 <laughs> copies of this thing, Matt. It's it's uh, it, that, it's really incredible. Happen, but, well, but yes, I'm, yes. Yeah. I, I Unfortunately, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. let's let's cross our fingers. So I want to be respectful of your time. You know, I, we're coming to the end of our episode, and, and it's been a, a a great chat. I think, 
Um, yeah, th- it's my pleasure, Jamie. It's really been great chatting with you. Well, yeah, for sure. And we've got to stay in touch. I got to know all about what's going on in Matt Slocum world. But talk to me a little bit about advice that you would give to up and coming drummers or musicians. You know, you've had an incredible career up to this point and it's going to go on for many many years you've you know you've mentioned modern drummer a couple of times in this um i suspect we're going to see your name in that magazine and some of those readers polls uh coming up in years to come talk to me a little bit about what advice you would offer to other musicians other drummers um i guess well, two things, and maybe I'll expand on that as I, I make a growing manifesto here. But please, uh, the best musicians are the best listeners, and that's you know, as drummers, um, we can. It's so easy for us to get caught up in, you know, we've got the, all these gear and the chops kind of side of things, but just serving the music and figuring out how to play what works musically. Like that's the magic and the feel, you know? And so I remember Peter Erskine just saying like, make it your mantra, like be able to play a simple beat really well. Or like talking about when you've got 10 drummers all playing the same swing pattern, like what's, like what's different, you know, like what makes Jim Keltner, Jim Keltner, you know, and I, I'm kind of branching off from the listening thing, but it's also, it's, it's intertwined when you like the best musicians are the best listeners, and especially for jazz. It's scary. It's scary. What, uh, these people can hear in real time and the interaction. Um, so I, I'd say work on that and, recording yourself playing with musicians who are more experienced than you and and serving the music. Um, and then the other thing I would say, and I remember we, I had a lesson with Peter Erskine about this too. So I'm in some ways I'm kind of just passing on some of his stuff, but it's, um, definitely true. Uh, like forget about all the, you know, he's like, it's like, we're not doing this to get rich. We're not doing this to be a modern drummer. Uh, any of that, you know, like you just, you have to just be doing this because you love the music and that's it. And you can't expect, um, you know, if, if you get, if nice things happen as a result of that, that that's great. But yeah, that was kind of his message with that. You mean um, you're not a millionaire, Matt? <laughs> no, definitely not. But, um, so that's there's there's your philosophizing for the day. Um, that's good. If fo- I were to add a third thing, it's please. Uh, I, I see so many um, like the people that I went to school with and stuff like that. There's no one way to do it. You know, I, I, especially here in New York, I see a lot of people, everybody's trying to be like the next like quintessential straight ahead drummer or, or whatever. But 
when I see these people uh, that I went to school with and everybody's doing their own thing in their own way and their own voice, there's no, there's no one formula for it. If anything, the formula is um, be yourself and the pursuit of finding whatever your voice is, you know? So that's it. Man, that's... At least for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I man, that's I, but that's great advice. You know, be yourself. The phone calls will come, and it, you just have to trust in that. You know, I I mean, I've talked to a ton of drummers that, you know, said, "Well, I tried to be something that I wasn't, and I got a phone call, and I went and tried out for the gig, and it wasn't me." And and in some right. cases, they played that gig for, you know, I don't know, 10 months on the road. Yeah. And they were like, it sucked. It was terrible. Be yourself. And if you are yourself, the cause will come and, and, and you'll do your thing. Um, so great advice, Matt. Thank you for offering that to our listeners. Now, one last thing that I want to talk about before we wrap up Tell everybody where they can, A, find the record where it pays you the most. <laughs> don't don't talk about iTunes or Spotify because we all know that's <laughs> where are people going to get Sanctuary on May 31st that helps you the most. Let's talk about that. Secondly, let's talk about how folks can get in touch with you. Website, Instagram, you know, all that stuff. Ha, huh, it's funny. I, I finally made it. I have a mixed relationship with social media. I finally made an Instagram account the other day. Um, well, good. So we're, we're, we're getting ready to yeah. flood you. We're getting ready to flood <laughs> you. So once again, I'm sorry I interrupted there. Tell us what that Instagram account is. It's uh, at Matt Slocum Jazz. Um, and the record is on a great label, Sunnyside Records. It's based here in New York City. Um, you can, you can order directly from them. The vinyl, I think the vinyl will definitely be available from my site. I'm not sure exactly. Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be available by May 31st. There might be some pre-orders available before then. Um, and, yeah. and what is that um, site address? Oh, my bad. MattSlocumJazz.com. Okay. Yeah, so that yeah. that's the one I've been looking at. And so talk to us just a little bit before we finally wrap up. I've kept you too long, but you do have some dates in the books. Just in case there are some booking agents listening, where are you going to be and where do you want to go touring this thing? Uh, well, these are U.S. dates that we're doing in June. Um we have a New York City record release. It'll be awesome on June 15th. I'll uh, be playing in Minneapolis, and we're going to go to the West Coast at the end of the month. So uh, hoping to do more stuff in Europe with this group. Uh, it's been a while since I've been over there with a group of my own. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm excited about this new record and would like to do more there. All right. Well, I'm going to throw out my name in the hat. Let's promote a show in central Kentucky. What's that sound like to you? <laughs> hey, man, I, I'm, I, I love playing wherever 
people want to listen. So that sounds great. All right. We'll talk about your minimums and uh, your uh technical writer and your hospitality writer offline. How's that sound? Yeah, all, all blue M&Ms. Man. All blue <laughs> I love the Van Halen reference. God bless you, Matt Slocum. Hey, man, Matt, thank you so much for doing the Drum Shuffle podcast. We really do appreciate it. Folks, Sanctuary, May 31st. Go pick up a copy of this. The links will be on thedrumshuffle.com. Matt, thank you so much. You're welcome here anytime. Keep us posted on what's going on, okay? Thank you, Jamie. Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk to you soon, brother. Thanks, man. All right. All right, everybody. That's going to wrap up episode number 70 of the Drum Shuffle. We certainly appreciate each and every one of you guys tuning in. We cannot do this show without all of you listening week in and week out. As always, I'm going to ask you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in to the Drum Shuffle. We have plenty of great interviews coming up in the coming weeks that you're not going to want to miss. Uh, I want to thank Matt Slocum for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on the show and talk all about his new record. Make sure you guys go check that out. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the great Ed Toth. Um, Ed, of course, you will know from his days in Vertical Horizon, one of the biggest bands of the late 90s. Uh, and Ed has actually been out on the road with the Doobie Brothers for the last 15 years. So it was really cool to catch up with Ed and hear all about what he's got going on. So he'll be our guest uh, next week. If you like the drum shuffle, the biggest thing you can do to help us out is share a link with a friend. Uh, just simply send the, the drumshuffle.com uh, via text message or instant messenger to one of your buddies and say, hey, check this show out. We certainly appreciate you helping us spread the word about the drum shuffle podcast. We love hearing from you guys throughout the week. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is our email address. We do answer every single email that we receive. The drumshuffle.com is our web address. And I have a website as well over at jamieeds.com. Uh, at jamieeds.com, you will see all kinds of social media links, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can follow us there as well as we do try to do some social media posts each and every week surrounding the show. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We cannot do this without you. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.